the Sutra number 20 was continuing the deep analysis which Patanjali gave about the mental impurities, about the way they create karma, about the way all these relate to the human soul. And actually, before recommending practical things about the method of yoga, Patanjali is going to continue for a few more sutras with his analysis of the human soul and mind. And the sutra number 21 is pretty philosophical, pretty vast, although it is a little bit partial. He presents it from a typically Vedantic angle, which afterwards he somehow corrects. That is also a thing which is quite clear. Patanjali, whenever he talks in the Yoga Sutra, he talks from the standpoint of Vedanta and of the dry forms of yoga, um, as I have warned you so many times. While we here try to give at the same time a Tantric Yoga analysis of the text, from the standpoint of energies, chakras, and other practical elements. The sutra number 21, or let's repeat number 20, so you see how it relates to it. The sutra number 20, which we analyzed last time, said the one who perceives is pure consciousness only, but in spite of his purity, he perceives through the mental concept. And that was a reference of Purusha, the spiritual aspect of the human being, which is pure consciousness, transcendent aspect, but it would not be able to relate to this world and to this manifestation unless it would perceive through mental concepts, which basically, as we explained last time, makes that the buffer between the spirit and the reality, the manifested world, is the mind. So we are having the manifestation the mind and the pure spirit, which is a transcendent element. And now we continue. He says in Sutra number 21, For the sake of that, or Purusha, alone, does Prakriti, or the objective world, exist. This is a pretty Vedantic statement. He simply says, therefore, the whole manifestation exists only to fulfill the spirit. It's exactly as if you would say, the divine consciousness has created this world, this manifestation, the prakriti, the world of the senses, the objective world, only as a sort of playground for purusha, which is the spirit. So this spirit, which needs the mind to interface with the reality, Basically, the reality itself is like created for the spirit. This is an interpretation which has both major flaws, but also major strong points to it. So we have to look into both aspects of that. <coughs> the flaws of this interpretation are the general flaws of the ascetic forms of yoga, as well as Vedanta and similar views, because they automatically promote the fact 
that spirit is the only reality and the manifestation or prakriti, the nature, has no meaning than to just test the spirit at the best. This is the typical Vedantic interpretation, according to which Maya is nothing else but a Fata Morgana, which is a sort of test. If you are spiritually right, you will see through Maya, and you will cut through the bullshit of this world, and you will sit and meditate, not being attached to anything whatsoever. And in this way, you will deny the world, you will tear the veils of this false reality, which is a dream, a magic dream, a Fata Morgana. Therefore, there is like no significance to the world else than to uh, create a background or a playing ground for the spirit. This automatically reduces the aspect of prakriti, nature, manifestation, objective world, or in tantric terminology, shakti, to a very subordinated level, where it's exactly like the feminine aspect of the universe, Shakti, exists only to fulfill the purpose of the masculine uh, consciousness, which is Purusha, the spirit. That's a little bit, you see it in most of the aesthetic forms of religion, which, as I have explained so many times, they are afraid of the feminine aspect and they deny it a lot, and it is exactly like Eve has been made out of a rib of Adam, and basically she was made to give a companion to Adam. Adam is the main character in the story, but because he was getting bored, God gave him a companion, and therefore the feminine aspect is secondary. This, of course, has been propagated into these patriarchal style of religions and to these ascetic forms of spirituality, into as a kind of justification for the inferiority of the feminine aspect, which is just a reflection made to serve the masculine aspect in all purposes. <coughs> it is exactly as you would say that the moon has no other function than to reflect the light of the sun, because it has no light in itself. That is why, from a tantric standpoint, this statement is a nonsense and it's an incomplete statement because the tantric tradition claims that Prakriti or Shakti, the feminine manifested aspect of nature, is as real as the spirit and it has its equal share, its equal function in the functioning of the universe, as actually Patanjali himself will kind of blurred out later, at an immediately later stage, thus semi-contradicting himself. On the other hand, this uh, statement, if it is interpreted in a tantric and more creative way, that the sake, for the sake of Purusha alone, does Prakriti exist, automatically it will be a way of interpreting illusion, which simply says it would give a meaning to life. In our workshops about metaphysics and uh, the basic metaphysical things of yoga, we keep telling that this world, according to the wisdom of this planet, is created for evolution. Therefore, if the world 
does not serve its purpose for evolution, it's like it loses completely any purpose. I can remind you that great wise people, such as Ramakrishna Paramahamsa or Mahananda Mahi, just to choose a man and a woman to show that this has nothing to do with uh, sexism of any kind, they have both stated that a human life which is not spent in the search of the truth is a life which is wasted. A human being which is born as a human being but seeks not consciousness and thus humanity as opposed to animality and just instinctual action is automatically a human being who wastes time. Which means if you have been sent in this life and you just live the normal bourgeois life in which you do aim only manifested purposes and you do not develop your spirit, you do not reveal your spirit, you are basically wasting time. That's why the Tibetans also say, one life spent in search of the truth is valid as much as all the other lives spent in a cosmic cycle. Like in a thousand lives, you don't have so much meaning as you have in one life, which is spent in the quest in search of the truth. Therefore, when you search for the truth, yes, there are differences. Some people are very strong in their search, some people are still wishy-washy and without too much determination, but we are all at different degrees of search of the truth, at search of reality, at search of ourselves and of emancipation. This automatically, this sutra from Patanjali, serves to outline very clearly the purpose of manifestation. Manifestation is not necessarily meaningless or just a dream, as some ascetic religions would say, but at the same time it finds its meaning only when it serves evolution. It's like, on one hand, it is good to mention it in this way, that the manifested world finds its full purpose if it serves the spiritual purpose. It does not exist independently and by itself. That's why Purusha and Prakriti both exist and are real and meaningful, but if you try to separate Prakriti from Purusha, automatically it becomes a nonsense. That is why the masculine and the feminine find their meaning only when together, because separate they become a nonsense, they lose reality. And that is why it is exactly what some people try to do, even in this uh, culture of modern days, when they are trying to create a modern civilization, as they call it, but without spirit. It's like we try to take a religion, God, spirit, search, mysticism, and anything which is spiritual and transcendent out of the lives of people. The life becomes a material thing in which the purpose is to eat, sleep, and procreate. Eat, drink, and be merry, or whatever this hedonistic, empty philosophy would be. And therefore, Patanjali also says, here he puts things well in perspective, this is the beautiful part of this sutra, besides its Vedantic connotations, its rough connotations, in denying some aspects of manifestation, 
that actually Patanjali is emphasizing upon the fact that the manifestation needs to be in conjunction with the spirit. Else, it is not at all. Else, it means nothing. Which means, if this planet, this world, this matter, this manifestation is not for the spirit, then it becomes a blasphemy. It becomes a nothing. It loses its purpose. If this, if, as I told to those of you who joined in our metaphysical workshop, if this planet does not serve the purpose of evolution, and the spirits that are incarnated on this planet do not evolve, then this planet can as well be atomized. It can be nuked by the divine consciousness, because it means nothing. Everything in this universe has a sort of divine motivation, a divine justification. And the divine justification of this reality is evolution, which is in itself a perfection of spirit. It is a spiritual purpose. That is why this statement of Patanjali is pretty rough, but it, it is pretty brave from a spiritual standpoint, because it is not wishy-washy at all. It, is, it simply says, either this world is spiritual, or if not, it is not at all. It is a nonsense. It is a non-existence. The manifestation finds its justification precisely in the fact that it is spiritual, in the fact that it is a manifestation for the Spirit, with the Spirit. And he continues in the Sutra number 22, which is a longer Sutra, following this trend of thinking, his rough trend of thinking, and actually he is trying to give a solution to a long-sought philosophical problem which persisted in the Western world even after the century of Patanjali. First, the Sutra. He says, to one whose purpose is fulfilled, which means to one who has reached the liberation, to the human being who has reached that spiritual realization, to one whose purpose is fulfilled, the objective world becomes non-existent, but it is not yet destroyed, like not completely destroyed, on account of being common to all the others who have not reached enlightenment yet. This is like a reply to the theory of Leibniz. Leibniz calls in his philosophical theories in the West that the spirit, the human spirit, this Atman, this Purusha, is a monad, as he calls it. And being a monad, a monad means like a unit in itself, each spirit creates its own nature, which means from the standpoint of each and every one of you, each and every one of you is Atman, each and every one of you is a monad. And therefore, each and every one of you is more or less the sender of your universe. The whole universe revolves around your consciousness of I am. And therefore, for each and every one of us, says Leibniz, all the others are like a painting on a screen. It's again the same thing, that there is a certain level of Maya, and we create our reality. I create all of you because I like to sit to see myself sitting on a chair in front of 50 people and talking to them. So this is my trip. I made myself into a teacher of human beings 
and I am raving. This is my trip. I am living in my trip. For me, all of you are like images painted on canvas. You are like a screen, like a cinema screen, and I am like living in a soap bubble. My spirit is in the center of this soap bubble, and on the inner surface of this soap bubble, I see my universe, my world. Therefore, in the moment when I am not anymore, this soap bubble pops and all this reality disappears. Therefore, the judgment of Patanjali and of the Vedantins can sometimes seem to go into this direction, like the, each spirit is the creator of its own universe, only that this idea is very difficult to uphold because it would require a huge effort of understanding the macrocosmic mind for understanding how all these soap bubbles I am a soap bubble, you are a soap bubble, each one has their own soap bubble. How comes that all these universes, my soap bubble and yours, interact? That means they synchronize. Not only that I am sitting here, but you are sitting there. And therefore, how comes that we have all fit? How comes that the cosmic consciousness, or better said, the macrocosmic mind, manages to synchronize all the soap bubbles of everyone, that although they are illusory and a movie, nevertheless they fit. So, if that because else, it wouldn't fit at all. My soap bubble would be a trip raving in this direction, and your soap bubble would be a trip raving in that direction, and our universes would not meet or fit at all. And then simply my soap bubble would be a complete unreality, in which nothing of what happens fits with your reality or the others. Or we know from empirical experience that it is not so that the actions of a human being reflect on another human being, that we have karma, we have action and reaction, we have synchronicity, we have a lot of phenomena which show that there is an interaction. And that is why uh, the theory of Leibniz in Western philosophy is considered to be some pure idealism, but it is a form of utopian idealism, because Leibniz cannot explain how do all these individual soap bubbles exist coherently together in the same kind of reality. Not to reach there, Patanjali is trying to find a kind of semi-solution. He is trying to make peace, and he says... Prakriti, this soap bubble, which is actually the manifestation, the universe, it's not a soap bubble. Prakriti exists only for the sake of the spirit. And then he says, to one whose purpose is fulfilled, that means who reach liberation, then there is no more need for Prakriti, because this one has become free and has become pure spirit. There is a catch to this, but I'm coming back to it later. And then the objective world becomes non-existent. It's like the world switches off. That's exactly what the way in which Buddha has also seen it. So actually here Patanjali copies or borrows ideas from the spirituality of his time, not uh, excluding at all Buddha, because actually later he makes a very clear allusion to this Buddhist angle of the things. So he says, Buddha said, in the moment when I have reached nirvana, the whole samsara blew off. 
it extinguished, it simply turned off. It's like, this is a dream, and as long as you are in Maya, you see it. And in the moment when you reach Samadhi, poof, the universe will disappear, because it was a Fata Morgana to start with. But again, that would mean that the universe is sustained by each and every one of these soap bubbles, and that's why Patanjali is trying to find a bridge. He says, for the one who reaches in Samadhi, subjectively like the universe puffs off, but for the rest of the people it still exists because they are not enlightened and they have to perfect their own. So he kind of tries to find a compromise. The manifestation subjectively, individually, disappears when you don't need it anymore. For the time being, you need Prakriti, nature, samsara, manifestation, illusion, maya, because you still are not off the hook. You are not free, and you are still subjected to your existential test of evolution. But if you will reach nirvikalpa samadhi, if you will reach this void samadhi, then the universe has fulfilled its task for you, because prakriti, is created for the sake of Purusha. In the moment when you have reached Purusha, what use is there anymore to any Prakriti? Therefore, the idea which Patanjali pushes here, and this was the catch, is again Vedantic and ascetic. Patanjali, until now, and very in most of his Yoga Sutra, doesn't seem to see any purpose to evolution other than to escape from this universe, which is the big boogeyman. That simply means this universe is samsara, is a prison, it is bad, and you have to liberate yourself. Therefore, you have to reach the point where Purusha, your spirit, doesn't need Prakriti anymore. You can turn the back to the world, and the world will make poof and you are out of here, and for the others, Prakriti exists, because it is actually a sort of test ground. It is a sort of playing ground for the other monads, spirits, which are still trapped in their illusory perception of reality. But for you, it has ceased to exist. In this way, it is almost, and this is unfortunately a view which is promoted in classical yoga, Vedanta, Vedantic yoga, and in the classical forms of Buddhism, in the old forms of Buddhism, like Theravada, that there is no future after enlightenment. You basically work and work to get yourself free, and then that's the end of it. There is nothing after becoming free. After becoming free, the universe dies for you, and you are spending your time in eternity, in pure spirit, in the pure existence of the cosmic Purusha. Of course, superficial analysts would say, oh, that's terrible because it sounds very boring. Of course, that's a misperception, because actually the ecstasy of the spirit, the ecstasy of Purusha, the ecstasy of Nirvana, is something which is way beyond space and time, and it is something of which you can never get bored. There are those people who have the naive conception that it would be nice to have some ecstasy, to be happy for 25 years and tickle yourself into ecstasy a lot, 
but that one day you would like to have all options still open because you might get bored of too much ecstasy and do something else. This is completely untrue because by its very nature, ecstasy is the nature of the spirit which is omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence and which means to be everything and everywhere simultaneously, all and everything. Therefore, there cannot be boredom in such a condition, because such a condition is infinite through its nature. It is exactly as Plotin has said, that God is a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose margin is nowhere. Nobody until now, in the mysticism of this planet, has found the end of this cosmic consciousness. Neither, either you call it the great void or nirvana or brahman or... God or whatever you call it, everybody has agreed having this experience that this cosmic consciousness, this Purusha, this pure spirit is infinite and therefore the experience of it is eternal. Therefore, no, we are not reacting to this because of the childish thing that actually ecstasy would be somewhat boring if there wouldn't be the world. Purusha is the place of all perfection. Whatever is limited in this world is infinite in Purusha. The knowledge which you have here, as much knowledge as you have the most perfect brain of any creature in this manifested universe, a supergalactic brain being, which has a capacity of knowledge that is astounding compared to human abilities, still cannot equal Purusha, because Purusha, or the spirit, Atman, is characterized by omniscience, which means the knowledge of all, simultaneously, totally, and everything. That is the characteristic of God, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and that simply means all and everything. And that is why the point is not that actually the ecstasy would not be enough, because the ecstasy of the spirit is enough, and it is actually one of the biggest temptations of the spiritual practitioners. The later Buddhists, especially the Tibetans, the Mahayana and the Tibetan trends, they have actually underlined it very beautifully. They have said the greatest sacrifice is to give up Nirvana, because Nirvana, which means this going away, is a great temptation. There is nothing better than Nirvana, and it would be the easiest thing in the world, once you have reached there, to actually remain there forever and ever, indeed turning the back to everything and saying, wow, once I have reached this, I don't want to see any of the previous things ever again. It's like manifestation sucks, it is painful, incomplete, limited, obscure, it has all kinds of flaws, and I don't even want to hear about that. This escapism is frequent in the spirituality of India and Asia, and not only. That people finding the pure spirit, they would simply get out of here in a fraction of a second, because why would they spend time in a limited, painful reality, when actually they could have omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and therefore the characteristics of absoluteness, the characteristics of universal consciousness. 
That is why this is a well-known factor in spirituality that sometimes spiritual people, very spiritual people, they may be tempted to dash out of here as soon as they find their salvation. And therefore the spirituality of the world has tried to soften it down, to tone it down, for example in Buddhism, but especially again in Mahayana Buddhism, the Tibetan Buddhism, which is another form of Buddhism more evolved from this standpoint, including the Tantric Buddhism, they have included the so-called Bodhisattva vows, that before reaching enlightenment, you actually take a vow in front of your own consciousness, that even when you will reach Nirvana, you are not going to just run out of here, but out of compassion, you are going to be around and help those who haven't found their way yet, which for some people is a nonsense. It's like, I fought for my own way, mind your own business, find your own way. I saved my soul, you save your soul. Compassion is not necessary. Who says that if you don't have compassion, you are not going to reach enlightenment? Nobody. Therefore, is it true that you can reach enlightenment without having any compassion? Yes, it is true, and it has been seen in the spiritual history of the world. Such people would not care a bit if anybody else has reached enlightenment, because everyone for themselves in this spiritual matter, they would say, and therefore exactly as I found mine, do something and find yours. It's your problem, after all. And if you don't want, wait until it becomes your problem, and then sooner or later you will get desperate to find your way out of this limitation and out of this obscure reality. And therefore, remember that the problem for which we want the toning down of this is actually not because there is something wrong with ecstasy or with nirvana, the perfection of Brahman or of the Absolute, of Purusha, of Atman, is established and therefore you could easily dive head forward into it and not look back for a second and be out of here and the hell with the rest of the world. They can do, they should do what you did. It's their problem, ultimately. But, uh, again, from a tantric standpoint, this is not true, and that is why Patanjali, realizing that this angle is bringing to a kind of extreme, absurd conclusion, Patanjali is actually toning down this, and he says, well, for you, when you will reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi, the universe will puff off, it will simply disappear, and you will be in pure spirit, what he calls Kaivalya, isolation, you will be cut off from this manifestation with its transient, illusory aspect. But, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever, the manifestation will still continue existing because it is a classroom for the other spirits from this planet who are not as evolved as you, and therefore the reality is semi-real. It's not completely unreal as for Leibniz and his monad that the reality is strictly around you like a bubble, because at the same time a part of it, we have to admit, even when Buddha got enlightened, 
the universe continued to exist for the rest of us because we need this universe for something while Buddha could say, well, I don't need it anymore, I'm out of here. Therefore, uh, in this way, actually Patanjali is caught in this logical dilemma of the ascetic forms of yoga and Vedanta by which they cannot really mention if this world, the reality in which we live, is actually totally real or not, and that's why they use some sort of half-tone. The reality is real and unreal, and we can't really say if it's real or unreal, so stop asking this question and get to meditation, because it's kind of impossible to explain. No, it is not. From the standpoint of the Tibetan Tantra, the Tibetan Anuttara Yoga Tantra, as well as from the standpoint of the Tantric traditions of India, it is not at all illogical. There is a higher logic which says that this universe, this manifestation is Shakti, the manifested aspect of the divine, and this Shakti has a very, very important function and therefore it is not to be shunned, and this is rising the idea what will happen with this Shakti, with the world, after we get enlightened. Because if after we get enlightened we don't just chicken out, we don't just run out of here, then automatically in these ideas of Bodhisattva and others, it means we come back, but if we come back, we come back for a purpose, and if there is a purpose of coming back, such as compassion, or loving kindness, or whatever you want to call it, it means that automatically there is a purpose in unfolding a spiritual work in this universe here, and that automatically makes this universe significant and real. And that's why, actually here, Patanjali is trying to juggle with a very difficult idea, because he is caught between the hammer and the anvil. On one hand, he is a yogi promoting a dry form of yoga, ascetic and Vedantic, and on the other hand, elementary logics, and he is a very logical person. You see how deep his ideas are, his one-liners are so profound, and he manages to go through almost all the big metaphysical ideas of spirituality, and therefore he's caught between the fact that his I, this Vedantic, dry, ascetic idea doesn't make full sense, actually, and you cannot really find a good justification for some things. So here Patanjali is walking a very narrow beam, a tight rope, in which he is trying to kind of make a compromise, by saying that, well, the world disappears, but not really, and therefore it is a kind of having uh, an intermediary, semi-real status. And let us continue. He says, this union, so he continues about, because the point was that Purusha and Prakriti are united only because Purusha needs it, and in the moment when you get enlightened, it actually disappears, for you at least, and then he says, this union of Purusha and Prakriti, of spirit and nature, is the cause of the realization or understanding of the essential nature of Purusha and Prakriti. This is another philosophical sutra, that's why I will not insist very much on it. It continues the idea from the other, and I don't insist because I want to focus on things which are mostly practical, 
in terms of our analysis of levels of consciousness, chakras, energies, as uh, we intend to do here, but uh, therefore we just have to give the general meaning. Here, Patanjali continues with his compromise. This sutra is a sutra which is almost tantric, in a text which is non-tantric. This sutra is almost tantric, because here Patanjali gets embroiled in his own argumentation, and he says, well, actually, Prakriti, as we very well know, doesn't disappear when somebody gets enlightened, which means for the other people it has a, uh, an independent existence, and then he has to try to justify what is the purpose of existence of this Prakriti, or Shakti. And here is his statement. This union of Purusha and Prakriti is the cause of the realization or understanding of the essential nature of Purusha and Prakriti, which means Shiva and Shakti dance together because they have to know themselves and each other. Shakti is the mirror of Shiva and Shiva is the consciousness of Shakti. And therefore Shiva and Shakti need to be together because the spirit when confronted with manifestation understands the nature of manifestation and manifestation is actually giving back or it is through discrimination leading to the nature of the spirit. Here, the commentators of Yoga Sutra have actually explored very briefly and partly this statement because it is uncomfortable for them being a tantric type of statement and that is why the, the interpretation of some of them of this sutra was like, yeah, yeah, the Purusha and Prakriti, spirit and nature, I hope you get familiar with these words those of you who are for the first time here, Purusha and Prakriti, spirit and nature, are joined together, but the only purpose is to discover that Purusha is real and Prakriti is unreal. That means they keep raving into this partial direction of the ascetic yoga, of the dry types of yoga or Vedanta. However, Patanjali doesn't say that, and actually the some great commentators like Vyasadeva and others, they have gone to the full implication of it, and they have shown that here Patanjali actually shows a broader view. He does deviate from this narrow, dry interpretation, because Patanjali simply says that Purusha and Prakriti being united, which means spirit and matter, being put in connection with each other, such as all of you are spirits, incarnated in a material world, so in each and every one of us we have spirit and matter, which are in dialogue with each other, we are having a continuous dialogue between our spiritual part and our material part, which means also energy, psychology, emotions, and all the rest of the things, and the cause of this, or the purpose of this union, is the realization of the essential nature of Purusha and Prakriti. You can interpret this dismissively, like, oh yeah, this means that you'll discover that Purusha is okay and Prakriti is a nonsense, but it means also literally at face value what it means, that this will make possible to realize spirit and nature, Shiva and Shakti, Purusha and Prakriti, which means each one of them helps each other. 
That's why the tantric tradition says constantly, there is no Shiva without Shakti, and there is no Shakti without Shiva. When you separate them, there is nothing but sorrow. There is basically nothing, better said. They have their fulfillment only as being together, and Patanjali is forced by his own logic argumentation to say so, although it's not a very Vedantic or dry yogic statement, but again, then he will go quickly over it and continue in his own thread. Therefore, we are ready to go to the sutra number 24. And he says, now he comes back to his stern attitude, he says the cause of this union, of the union of spirit and matter, is avidya or ignorance. So he comes back to it, well actually, if you wouldn't be ignorant, you would be pure spirit, and there would be no need to be united with matter. The fact that you are united with nature is a matter of ignorance. Taken from a strictly Vedantic, dry spiritual, ascetic standpoint, he is again right. You are a prisoner in samsara, maya, and you better escape from here, going into the spiritual reality, and therefore the only reality is nirvana, or the pure spirit. From the other standpoint, his uh, statement again can and should be toned, which means the cause of this union is ignorance, but it is also that this union is unconscious, not deliberate, and that is why it is a union which is ignorant which means my spirit is engrossed in matter, but this is not a deliberate action, because I am not at the level of Shiva to dance voluntarily the dance of the universe. I am at the level of an imprisoned spirit, which is forced, like you are in a deep sleep, and things happen to you without you being able to decide. You are just pushed into life and into the things which happen. For, he says, out of ignorance, your spirit is entrapped in matter, and this is the fun of it. This is the whole trouble of it. While the tantric tradition would say, this statement forgets one alternative. That alternative is the alternative of Shiva, the great spirit of the universe, which is united to Shakti and therefore is engrossed in this universe, at the same time being free, because this union is done with Vidya, with knowledge, not with Avidya, which means with ignorance. And therefore, this statement has its limit, because it actually forgets and doesn't mention clearly another thing. It is possible for the spirit to be associated with the universe for another reason, exactly as a reincarnated Buddha is back not because of ignorance or slavery or any automatic factor, but on the contrary because of a spiritual light which manifests as compassion, loving kindness and a sincere wish to help the evolution of the universe, the evolution of spirit in this universe. And that is why this statement is coming back into the 
tracks of Vedanta and ascetic yoga. He is blood. You are here the union between spirit and nature and you are not enlightened because of avidya or ignorance. If you would be knowledgeable in the ultimate meaning of the word, because it's not an intellectual knowledge, but a true spiritual knowledge, if you would have the true spiritual knowledge, you would be liberated and your purusha would not be attached to prakriti, which means you would have gone out of here, which is again a very partial statement. However, from a tantric standpoint, this statement gives to us a practical thing, because in the moment when Patanjali says the cause of this union between spirit and matter is avidya, those of you who have been to the previous lectures might remember that avidya in the chapter 2 of Yoga Sutra was one of the five poisons, was one of the five great poisons of the mind, and more precisely, it was the poison of Vishuddha Chakra, the highest of them, the poison which corresponds to the fifth element. In Tibetan yoga, also avidya or ignorance, stupidity as they call it sometimes, is related to the fifth element, Vishuddha Chakra, and it is the root cause of all the other poisons of the mind. All the kleshas or impurities are originally coming from this one which is the mother root. And Buddha has said it clearly in his own way. The cause of suffering is ignorance. If there would be no ignorance, there would be no suffering. Everybody keeps telling the same thing, only that the solutions which are proposed are slightly different according to the nature of the past. Therefore, what Patanjali says is that the ultimate spiritual obstacle which creates spiritual ignorance and therefore slavery is in Vishuddha Chakra. Once you have managed to surpass Vishuddha Chakra, when your Vishuddha Chakra is activated and fully purified and harmonized, you already have obtained a degree of spiritual freedom. The states of Samadhi, the states of superconsciousness, they start basically, technically, from Vishuddha Chakra. That's why Vishuddha Chakra corresponds already to the first very spiritual levels of the human being. And those of you who remember the theory from yoga about the five bodies and all the rest, you remember that the level number five, Vishuddha, corresponds to the causal body and it corresponds therefore to the divine part of the human being. The levels five, six, seven, they correspond to the upper spiritual triad, which is the divine nature, Satchit Ananda, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and all the other denominations which we have for this spiritual triad. So this is useful because it shows you how important Vishuddha Chakra is. If Vishuddha Chakra is surpassed, you start entering spiritual freedom in terms of Tantric Yoga, of Kundalini Yoga. And he of course has to twist, turn the tables and to show the positive side of things, which he does in the Sutra number 25, where he simply tells us exactly the opposite, by saying, by the absence of avidya, ignorance, so by destroying this ignorance, 
the union between Purusha and Prakriti disappears. This is called Hana avoidance or the liberation of the Purusha. While he describes the context correctly, he describes the effect from his own personal standpoint, which is the Vedantic, dry yoga, ascetic type of standpoint. He simply said, if avidya disappears, which means if vidya is there, if one gets the real discriminative spiritual knowledge, which is not an intellectual knowledge, but the experiential, existential, direct knowledge, which means the direct level of consciousness, so if this ignorance disappears, the union of Purusha and Prakriti disappears, which is, he calls avoidance, like you avoid being trapped in matter, and this is the liberation of Purusha. Liberation is a very big concept in all the ascetic forms of yoga and related to Buddhism as well. The spiritual victory by these yogis was called liberation. But a great tantric guru of India in the 10th century has made fun of the word liberation because he said liberation of whom and of what? He said there is no liberation. What liberation? Who keeps you prisoner into what? What is liberation? And from a tantric standpoint, of course, he was right because he was looking into the aspect of divine life, of eternal life which is a typical tantric concept. But in the ascetic dry forms of yoga as illustrated by Patanjali, the equation is very clear. Here you are in samsara and you are a prisoner, and the only thing which we can suggest is get the hell out of here, go in nirvana, go in purusha, because that's where enlightenment, that is liberation. Liberation means that you break the chain. It means that you escape from the prison. And indeed, uh, this spirituality, which is a very masculine type of spirituality, psychologically speaking, is automatically a spirituality which is wild. It's exactly like you are a prisoner and you want to break the chain. And that's why you can see in the spiritual endeavors of so many people on this planet, that they had exactly this break the chain type of attitude. Like they were simply wild and they had like to liberate themselves from a great imprisonment. There is a power in this. That's why many people in the beginning, they like this because it gives them power. While the other attitudes can sound to them flabby. And while logically it's not perfect and it doesn't answer to many questions, nevertheless this is one of the spiritual trends on this planet. And therefore, Patanjali says by avoiding ignorance, which means by acquiring knowledge, the union of Purusha and Prakriti disappears, which means you are going to reach Nirvana, the world will disappear for you, and you will become disinterested in this universe because it will pop like a soap bubble and it will cease existing for you. You will obviously be able to see that everybody else is still under the sway of samsara, but ultimately that's their problem. If you have a level of compassion, then you may decide to play some sort of in-between, between your freedom 
your isolated freedom, Kaivalya, and coming back to this completely illusory level of reality for you. Again, this creates a sort of logical dilemma, that's the main logical dilemma of all these ascetic forms of yoga, but as you can see, they describe the goal as liberation and breaking the connection between Purusha and Prakriti. Separate. The spirit is like a butterfly and the matter is like a cocoon. And exactly as a silkworm turns in the butterfly and has to break the cocoon and set free. When you are free, the cocoon is not there anymore. The cocoon is the world and the world for them is just a pain in the neck. Is an obstacle which keeps you a prisoner and you simply want to get out of it without any concern for it. Now, some people, again, they, and this is a trend, especially in modern spirituality, people are hardly having this wild feeling for freedom, which is common both to men and women. Remember, there have been great, great women in Indian and Buddhist spirituality who had exactly this kind of urge. They were completely untamed, completely wild. So it's not just a man's thing. Because women sometimes develop the same super-heroic, radical type of attitude that I want out of here, I want to reach my nirvana, and I don't stand samsara for a second anymore. Therefore, the problem is, again, that this mentality has served some people. Among you, there are people who are having a big development of Svadhisthana, or some of the other lower chakras, and because of this you feel attached to this world. And every time when you hear a Patanjali, or a Shankaracharya, or a Buddha, talking in a radical way, like break loose, it's like, uh, it's too much. Uh, no, it's too much, it's too radical. Like, who is going to arrange the flowers in the garden anymore? Buddha would say, screw the flowers, who cares? They are a Fata Morgana. You keep forgetting. There are no flowers, there is no ocean, there is no Eiffel Tower, there is no society, there is no humanity. It's all a dream. The fact that you care about them shows that you are still hypnotized, and because of this you say, yeah, but if we all do yoga, uh, who will make children? Who will do, who will go in the mines and crop coal, or who cares? From the standpoint of Buddha, nobody cares who will do industry, or mining, or children, or this, because one like Buddha would say, wow, that would be a miracle to see that everybody on this planet suddenly becomes ultra-spiritual, and they all get enlightened in a generation time, and then this planet is empty. Everybody has saved themselves. That would be such a victory that God would applaud with great hands and say, Wow, I haven't seen anything like this since a long time. What does it matter that the planet remained empty and nobody did kids anymore or this? The important thing is that six billion souls have reached nirvana. It's unseen of. Usually it's a few hundred souls who reach nirvana in a generation. And those are the champions, the big ones. 
But basically, you see, when you look upon this thing from Svadhisthana and the low chakras, you tend to have this compromising attitude. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, we understand. Yeah, yeah, spirituality, yeah, it's true. Yeah, meditation, but not too much, please. I mean, it's kind of... Then for you, people like Milarepa and like Buddha and like Jesus, they are complete fanatics. They are inaccept- unacceptable because they are like too radical. Jesus is openly saying, why do you sow and uh, crop and why do you do agriculture? Because look at the birds of the sky, God feeds them anyhow. Why do you toil and make clothes and so on? Because look at the lilies in the field, they are beautiful and glorious. Therefore, Jesus is the ultimate hippie. He says, nobody on this planet should do textile industry and make clothes. Nobody on this planet should do agriculture and farming. You are wasting your time. It's a proof that you don't trust in God. Trust in God and your food will come from heaven. You will find every day a dish in front of your room with the food on it. It doesn't matter from where it comes. But because you don't trust, you try to provide for yourself. There's a lack of trust. And for most people this idea is unacceptable. How many people would dare now to quit everything and leave it on to God? You wouldn't do anything exceptional. Hundreds and thousands of men and women did that, and they just followed the words of Jesus, nothing more and nothing less. Therefore, but you see, when you have a Svadhisthana thing, you tend to make compromise. You tend to say, yeah, we'd like to do spirituality, but maybe not that radical, and so on. And then Swami Vivekananda here is coming and telling you, a Patanjali here is talking about this escapistic vision, and then you are breathing with relief and saying, ah, I'm glad I found this yoga teacher, because he is more moderate. I am not more moderate. I want to jump beyond what Patanjali said, not to stay below. Be careful that for some of you, a so-called spiritual moderation, which you profess, is actually the sign of a certain weakness. It's a sign of the fact that you are trying to ride on two horses and to stay with your ass on two chairs at the same time. You would like to be spiritual, but you are not prepared to give up the world. And if you do that, you are in a position of weakness. You think you do it, because now Swami Vivekananda here has given to you an excuse, because Patanjali is too radical, and the hell with Buddha and uh, Shankaracharya and all these ascetic Vedantic extremists who say that you have to run away from here and deny the world. No, no, it's not true, and our teacher Swami Vivekananda has actually said that we can chill out, we shouldn't be that wild. You misunderstood. I didn't say you should chill out in your spiritual drive. I said you should be more wild than those people. The only thing which I'm trying to say is that such people, they describe only one slope of the hill, and they don't tell you that when you pass over the top, there is the other slope of the hill, which is the divine light, the enlightened light, in which indeed there is a continuation, the spiritual history, does not end when you reach nirvana. The spiritual history reaches its climax when you reach nirvana, but there is a continuation after nirvana of each one's spiritual history after samadhi. And that is why, please do not take my words 
as an excuse for your compromising spirit. Some of you are very young in spirituality. It can be that some of you have been doing yoga for two, three years and more, and you have already seen, analyzed, felt, you have a certain wisdom and spiritual maturity, and then you know that what the great spiritualists say is true, and you are ready to go for it, full power, and you are uncompromising. But some of you, being young in yoga, and maybe not having enough spiritual maturity, are always willing to make compromises. Like, well, yeah, I will do some yoga, but I'm not going to shatter myself doing yoga. I will do yoga, but at the same time, I will do a little bit of my gardening, and I will do a little bit of this, and I will do a little bit of that. Like, again, trying to ride on two horses. See, for example, Jesus is not compromising. He says you cannot serve two masters at the same time, God and money. And therefore, he's kind of radical, which one or the other. And he gives so many examples in which he is completely uncompromising. It's black or white. There is no way between them. Here, I, because I'm teaching a tantric angle, a tantric point of view, I'm not trying to diminish that determination, because that determination in you is sacred. It's like a sacred fire which burns in you and says, I want spirituality at all costs, even if it costs me my life, I want to reach the spiritual truth. I will not compromise anything. If it costs me my comfort, if it costs me my health, if it costs me my life, I'm going to go for the spiritual thing. It's like I want God and nothing else. Nothing is good enough, exception made of that. That's what I want to reach. This kind of spirit must not be lost. This is the aspiration. When I'm telling that actually in Tantric Yoga we are not trying to separate Purusha from Prakriti, I'm not trying to tell you that we're trying to cultivate a dual, compromising, lukewarm attitude. I'm telling that the, yoga, the Tantric Yogis have noticed that besides this great spiritual urge, there is also a future to it, which is the embracing of the manifestation, but not from the position of a compromising, weak slave, but from the position of the Shiva consciousness, which is the master of the universe. So the tantrics say, you should not run away from this universe, but you should neither stay in it as slaves. If you have to stay as slaves, then better run, because it's better to run from this universe than to keep on staying in it as a slave. The only convenient option to stay is to stay as lords of the universe. Then you can stay. But else, it's like we encourage slavery. And that is why, remember, I often tone down these ascetic, Vedantic, dry, originally Buddhist excesses of these spiritualists, but I am toning them down to put into perspective the glorious situation, the glorious perspective of a divine life. Else, if I would do it just to diminish your ardor and to say, oh yeah, chill out, be a little bit more compromising about these things, 
I wouldn't do my duty as a spiritual teacher, and that's why I had to say, yes, I often criticize this, but those of you who are compromising people on Svadhisthana and other chakras, they surely misunderstand me, because they think that I'm coming to kind of sweeten it down, to water it down. I'm not trying to water it down. I'm trying to further enlighten this position by showing the full angle, the full perspective of these things. And Patanjali concludes, and now he will come basically to yoga. Finally, he will start referring practically to yoga. The last of the statement is like, he repeats the solution. He said that by the absence of avidya, by destroying ignorance, the liberation of Purusha comes, and I have tried to explain it in a tantric metaphysical way, and he continues in the sutra number 26, giving the simple solution, the short answer, and then he will spend the rest of the Yoga Sutra giving you the long version of the answer. The short version is, the unfluctuating awareness of reality is the means for this avoidance. So basically, avoidance, avoiding getting trapped in the matter, avoiding Purusha to be linked, to be bound to Prakriti, the means for this is the unfluctuating awareness of reality. Actually, he uses here the expression viveka kiyati, using the word viveka, which means discrimination. But uh, here the word discrimination is not used in the way in which it is used normally in yoga psychology and in India. Viveka, or psychology normally, means discriminating. This is this, and this is that. This is useful, and this is not useful. This is positive, and this is negative. That's the function of Viveka. Here he uses discrimination more like a thing like discriminate reality in the meaning of awareness. Actually the word which would apply best in the way in which he describes this would be the word vigilance. It's like be vigilant, be awake, be aware, be present all the time. It's what the Christian mystics have called the awakening of the heart to be awake in your heart. This uh, quality is very, very much cultivated in the original Buddhism. In the original Buddhism, that's actually the purpose of all the Vipassana and related things, is to cultivate this, what I call here in English, unfluctuating awareness of reality. Vigilance, this kind of being 100% present. Technically, in yoga, we know that this unfluctuating awareness, this ultimate awareness, comes only from Sahasrara. Only when the crown chakra is aroused enough, this awareness comes. There are degrees of awareness which are related with Ajna, Vishuddha, and then less and less, like becoming more and more dull, this awareness, and the maximum pole of awareness is in Sahasrara. That is why the methods of awareness, like in Vipassana and others, they basically aim to activate Sahasrara. Theoretically, that's what Vipassana tries to do from a Tantric Yoga standpoint. 
The fact that you try there and you try to be aware, aware of the body, aware of the breath, aware of the sensations, aware of the emotions, aware of everything, is just a desperate attempt to empirically, somehow, wake up your Sahasrara. The lucky ones, which means the extremely persevering ones, they finally manage. That's the sign of success. In yoga, we work in a more direct way, because we think that just sitting on your buttocks and trying to reach awareness is a little bit like searching for a needle in a haystack, because uh, Sahasrana, you might get it, you might not, depending on a lot of factors. That is why the method as a principle, here is where I said, I promised, that Patanjali comes back to a statement of Buddha. It can be that Patanjali took it from Buddha, or that Buddha took it from Patanjali, or that both took it from the undercurrents of spirituality of that century. Because, scholarly speaking, it seems that Patanjali and Buddha almost lived in the same century, albeit in different parts of India. And therefore, here Patanjali confirms that the attitude of Buddha is correct. And this attitude, you can see it in Zen, which is of course Buddhist, still it's normal. In Zen meditation, you have the same attempt for reaching awareness. And actually, as some of you know, uh, if you are attending some of the lectures where I talk about the heart and the fathers of the desert and the others, even the great Christian mystics were trying to cultivate the same form of Awakening, of vigilance, to be vigilant in your heart, they call it, because of course they are starting from here. Even the Zen masters, they say that you should be vigilant in your hara, but actually that's not about Manipura. The Christian mystics say you should be vigilant in the heart. It's not that you stay in Manipura or that you stay in Anahata. It's that you go deep, deep, deep in either of those chakras, and from there something moves to Sahasrara. The vigilance, this awakening or awareness, is always in Sahasrara. So that means that the Zen practitioners, they obtain an arousing of Manipura with Sahasrara. In the end, a successful Zen teacher is not only on Manipura, is on Manipura, Ajna, because they have a lot of practice on Ajna, and success, enlightenment in Zen, it's still in Sahasrara. It's impossible to get over this one technically. Enlightenment comes from Sahasrara, period. And if those who practice the awakening or the vigilance of the heart, the wakefulness of the heart, it's not that they stay in Anahata, it's that at some point they go so deep that something moves to Sahasrara, and they still reach Sahasrara, so for the Christian mystics who have reached this, it is Anahata and Sahasrara. Sahasrara is inevitable when you are trying to get this. That is why in Kundalini Yoga, we think, in Laya Yoga, in Tantric Yoga, we think we have got a shortcut to this, because instead of searching for awareness indirectly, you search it where it is. We simply tell you, put your energy in the crown chakra, and you will see awareness appearing in your life. 
more energy you put in Sahasrara, more aware you will be. The equation is very simple. When your Sahasrara will be humming with energy, your awareness will shine like the sun. And therefore, the thing is, uh, in the Tantric tradition, technically very clear, but here Patanjali has illustrated that, and it is a brilliant confirmation that all the sides of spirituality, they fall together, they make sense together. The last sutra which I want to comment for tonight is a sutra in which Patanjali starts preparing the practical background for what he says. He simply says, in 26 he said, the unfluctuating awareness of reality is the means of avoidance. Clear. He preaches the method of awareness. And in 27, he says there are seven stages of enlightenment of that Purusha. So this spirit, to reach to its full liberation or enlightenment, goes through seven stages. Here, this sutra is interpreted in two major ways by different groups of interpreters. Some people, like even Vyasa, one of the very solid commentators from centuries ago, they have interpreted that somehow they have to dig throughout the yoga tradition and to find out some sort of seven stages. Because Patanjali says, and wherever he took it from, that there are seven stages. That's like describing seven stages towards enlightenment. Like first you get this awareness of the physical things and then you get awareness of energy and then you get awareness of the astral body or your emotions. And it seems to be a process which like goes along to the bodies or with the chakras technically. That is half or actually more than half of the commentators, they go along with that. I will not bother telling you what they have invented. It's a whole table with seven levels. It doesn't make any practical use or sense. Those seven levels which people come and bring us commentary to this one sutra are not to be found neither before in Yoga Sutra nor later. So they don't link with anything and they definitely don't teach anything practically. They are simply a conceptual thing suddenly splashed in the middle in the sutra number 27 which says there are seven stages of enlightenment. Good. It's good to know. And so what? Nothing. Go on and read the sutra number 28. Maybe you'll find something more practical there. So it becomes almost like a logical, like a, some sort of intellectual exercise or something like this. That is why I personally do not find it important to instruct you on those. Take any good translation of Yoga Sutra and its commentaries and I'm sure you are going to find there a list of those seven levels which Vyasa said. These are the seven levels of which Patanjali talks. However, some other commentators, they actually say no, that's not the meaning that now we should invent take out of our belly and create ad hoc uh, a system just to fit with this statement, a system which we are going to make now and then discard because we are not going to get to use it for anything. Anyhow, 
but actually the meaning of this, some commentators say, is referring to the eight stages of yoga, which is precisely the next step. The next step is that Patanjali starts speaking about yoga and its eight levels. And then the seven steps will be the transitions between the eight levels. They are the intervals from one to two, Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, and the others, which you probably know from the first month of yoga, and therefore the seven levels, the seven stages of enlightenment are like going from one to two, from two to three, from three to four, from, and therefore they actually fit with the yoga in eight steps. And indeed, that would make more sense, because Patanjali keeps talking about those eight levels for the next twenty-something sutras, and analyzing them in detail, and that automatically makes much more sense, because else, the sutra number 27, would simply oblige us to create, yeah, like there are seven stages of enlightenment of the Purusha, interesting, which are those? Oh, this and this and this and this, right, good to know. I made a small intellectual exercise. Now, let's go to Sutra 28 and continue with the Yoga Sutra, because 27 was just a mental gymnastics, that's all. That is why I personally find that the second explanation, the second interpretation, makes much more sense. Patanjali spoke about the liberation of spirit. He said it has been obtained, it can be obtained by awareness of reality, and said it can be obtained, this ultimate enlightenment can be obtained in seven stages, which are going to be illustrated precisely by the next sutras, which describe yoga with eight steps. So basically, Patanjali makes an introduction to yoga. He simply has introduced yoga. He has described the impurities, karma, bondage, liberation, and all the issues, and simply says to obtain this formidable state of liberation <coughs> or enlightenment, you can follow a process in seven stages, which is done by yoga. So basically it's like Patanjali is promoting yoga. He's saying the method of yoga, which I'm going to introduce to you right away, is a method for liberating the spirit. He's actually trying to say everything which I said until now is possible by this method. It's like now I'm getting to concrete fact. Let's get a little bit concrete, down to earth. And here comes yoga as I wish to present it. That is why it is much more probable that instead of just mentioning passingly an abstract system of seven levels other than yoga, actually those seven levels refer to the seven steps of yoga until samadhi or the transitions between the eight levels of yoga. Whichever way you take it, it works in both ways. And this is actually where the second chapter starts becoming more concrete. Patanjali will have some very important things to teach about yoga, and of course you will discover that many of the things which we teach casually in the yoga courses about yama and yama and other things have their origin ultimately here. It is Patanjali who spoke first about them in history, and then they became common yogic lore, so there will be some information or in our next meeting next week, over which we are going to go very lightly, because those things have been commented 
extensively. There is a sutra in which Patanjali introduces ahimsa or non-violence. I'm not going to hold the non-violence lecture once more here because everybody heard or should have heard the non-violence lecture in our first month course. If you haven't, go to the first month course in the relevant day and listen to that lecture. So therefore, here I'm not going to insist on things which are very well known and clear in our yoga courses, but I am presenting the rest of the Yoga Sutra, which has to bring so many deep views upon reality. So, I will stop with the Sutra number 27, where he said that he prepares to introduce yoga as solution to the problem. There is a problem, we have impurities, we identify ignorantly with the Purusha, with Prakriti, we are therefore plagued by karma and the kleshas and all the other things, and therefore there is a method for reaching this liberation, awareness, and it is a method with seven steps, which is nothing else but yoga, which does that. How and why, we are going to see in the next meeting when we continue.